Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, it says, Then he, that is Jesus, came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him, and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and he said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. In Mark chapter 8, we have seen portraits of Jesus. We've seen illustrations of the servant. Mark chapter 8 has included the provision of the servant in verses 1 through 10 as he feeds the multitude. The provocation or the provoking of the servant in verses 14 through 21 as he confronts the religious leaders. And now we see a portrait of the power of Jesus as he opens up a man's blind eyes. By the way, this remarkable passage is unique in the New Testament in the sense that the story doesn't appear in Matthew and it doesn't appear in Luke or John. We also discover something else that is unique. It is the only miracle in the New Testament that seems to take place in stages. In this remarkable passage, we discover that not all healing is instantaneous. Not all vision unfolds at once. Sometimes you can see the outline of the truth. But the details are indistinct. Not all touches by the master will result in immediate wholeness and wellness. And sometimes Jesus shows up and he does things in a way that defies explanation. And by the way, when the hand of God is on your life, you can expect to be touched not once, not twice. But some of you will experience the hand of God over and over and over again. Jesus leads, he guides, he shepherds, he instructs. Someone has written, love has a hymn to its garment that touches the very dust. It can reach the stains of the streets and lanes, and because it can, it must. The love of God will go places and show up in places. And by the way, when your life has been touched by the servant, you want to share that touch. You know, as a young man, my life was blinded by anger and hurt and, in some cases, depression. I was angry over the divorce of my parents, my rebellion and my disobedience, my experimentation and exploration of drug use. My life had been blinded by false teaching and false religion and false loyalties and false expectations. I believe drugs were to be taken and people were to be exploited and that the end justified the means. My moral vision was probably blind, at best blurred. 
And my religious vision was dark and black and empty. I was morally and spiritually blind. Some people are wicked in their rebellion and their resistance against God. Some people are just simply clueless. Most people don't dare act out their dark and twisted fantasies, but some do. We only have to spend a brief time with the television or the computer or the best-selling books to discover that we live in a world that's hollow. We live in a world that is empty. We live in a world where people are driven to greater and greater heights of personal and national perversion. We are a dark and lonely people. We live on the outskirts, the outer limits. Of light and truth and revelation. You know what? More people hear the gospel and reject it than in the history of humanity. More people have access to the gospel. They have access to the good news. They have access to the truth. And I need you to understand something. That this miracle, like all miracles in the New Testament, isn't simply one blind man's desperate desire to see again. There is a sense in which this is a spiritual parable. This is a parable about reality. Some people will be touched by Jesus and their vision isn't exactly clear. They need a second touch. They see the outline of the truth, but they don't see the truth completely. And so in this passage, Jesus will care for the man's friends in verse 22. He will care for the man's handicap in verse 23. He will care about the man's beliefs in verse 23. He will care and then keep after it in verses 24 and 25. Jesus will care about the man's family in verse 26. In what way? He doesn't send the blind man back to the village. He'll send him home. Look at verse 22. Then he, that is Jesus, came to Bethsaida, a blind, and, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. A delegation of friends brought the blind man to Jesus. Remember, there's been a hurried exit from the, the, from the, the uh, west side of the shore of the Galilee to the east side of the shore of Galilee. And a delegation of people have brought the blind man to Jesus. Someone has said, blessed is he who expects nothing, for he won't be disappointed. But the friends expect something. There's a reason why they bring him to Jesus. And I'm going to suggest to you, it could very well be that they themselves had been recipients of the servant's touch in weeks past or in months past. Jesus had healed a blind man before with just a touch. He healed a woman with an issue of blood with, with just a touch. He had opened blind eyes, deaf ears. He has cleansed the leper. Why not for their friend? And sometimes that's exactly how you feel. Jesus has saved me. He's redeemed me. He's forgiven my sins and reconciled me to the Father. Why not pray for my unbelieving father, mother, brother, sister? Why not bring them to church? And, and I'm glad that you bring your family and your friends to church. But by now, you've probably guessed that church doesn't save anybody. 
There's a reason why we bring people to Jesus and we point them to Jesus and we remind them that it is Jesus who washes and cleanses. It's Jesus who brings the miracle. It's his touch. And what we want to do with our blind family and friends, even if they can't see Jesus, you open up the Bible and you go, hey, this is a portrait of Jesus. And they go, I don't see him. And you go, let me let me place my your hand in his hand. So that he can take you to a place where he can help you. (laughs) You've got to understand something. Remember what happened earlier in the chapter? The disciples were on a kind of spiritual tape delay. They weren't exactly understanding completely the message of Jesus. And they weren't understanding completely the miracles of Jesus. By the way, there are two ways to be blind. One is where our vision is impaired or blurred or non-existence. There's one way to be blind as you look out into the world. But there's another way to be to be blind. And that's as you look within. As you look inside of your heart and as you look inside of your circumstances. Where our perceptions are blurred, shaded, twisted, dark again. We see on the outside, and we see on the inside, and I want you to go back in time, just for a moment. I want you to imagine what it would have been like to be a Jew or a Gentile in the first century. And there you are, in Bethsaida. On the shores of the Galilee, you might be a Jew, you might be a Gentile. To the Jew, to be born blind was to experience a curse. Blindness was endemic to the ancient world in Eastern cultures. The lack of good hygiene, proper medicine left many people without sight. Most blind people were beggars and outcasts who would only be touched by family and by friends. Religious leaders very rarely touched them because they were believed to be living under some kind of judgment. As a matter of fact, in another gospel, the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And the response of Jesus was unbelievable to them and unexpected to them. Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents' sin, but rather that the work of God would be revealed in him. The servant's touch often begins when intercession is made by people who care. And that's why it's important that you care. It's important that you think about your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your family, your friends, your neighbor. It's important that you think about them and you place yourself in this circumstance and you remember what it was like to live a dark, empty and live in a dark and empty world. The servant's touch begins with intercession. And oh, how happy and wise are those people who long to see their family and friends saved, who will pray for them, who will minister to them, who will speak with them, and who will try to get them to a place where they can put their hand in the hand of Jesus. In the pulpit commentary of all places, which was written 150 years ago, Professor J.J. Given has this beautiful paragraph on this passage. He writes, we know not whether this blind man had a wife or child. 
It is probable he had. And if so, when he arose in the morning, his wife ministered to him. His children clung to his knees and kissed him while he blessed them. They led him forth to the street or elsewhere out of the doors. He could feel them, but not behold them. Their smiles, their tears, their bright eyes and sweet faces were to him unknown and by him unseen. All the region round Bethsaida was charming. The glancing waters of the lake, the lovely flowers of the Galilean hills were a sight worth seeing. But what were all these to a blind man? The district might as well have been in the dark and dismal and bleak and black. And at any rate, a blank, a night without a moon or a star, a midnight where the darkness is palpable. A place where darkness might be felt. For those of you who have ever been to the Galilee, for those of you who have ever had the privilege of journeying there and you've seen the sunlight reflect off the Sea of Galilee, you've watched the spring flowers bloom on the side of the hill. It is beautiful. And for those people who woke up this morning in the darkness and emptiness of their life, They woke up and they took a shower and they brushed their teeth and they prepared themselves. But they're living a life of darkness and emptiness. They don't see what you see. They don't understand what it means to experience life and love and forgiveness and hope. You know, the Bible talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, how Moses' face was veiled and that the religious leaders couldn't see beyond the veil. There was this glow that would take place in his in his life and that for the Jewish people, there is this darkness, this blindness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14, it says, but their minds were blind. People are blind. To the truth about Jesus and to the truth of his love and the truth of salvation or they don't want to see it. And in verse 23, look what it says. So he that is Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had (laughs) spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. I want you to pay close attention to the text. I want you to look at it. And I want you to ask it some questions. It's okay. Jesus takes the blind man by the hand. He leads him out of Bethsaida. Why doesn't Jesus heal him right on the spot? We've already followed in Mark's gospel. Does Jesus have the ability to heal with just a word? Does the person even have to be present? No. Is Jesus somehow limited? By the way, earlier in the ministry of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 21 through 24, you'll remember that Jesus rebukes the cities of the northern Galilee, Chorazin and Bethsaida. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 21, Jesus says, For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, verse 22. And I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Bethsaida was under a curse. 
and was going to live without a witness. But Jesus still cares about the condition of the blind man. We live in a world that is destined for judgment. I've got to tell you something, and you already know it. This world and everything in it is passing away. This nation, almost certainly, invariably, will face judgment. I think Billy Graham was right when he said, If God doesn't destroy the United States, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. There is this sense of darkness because of the rebellion and the resistance of people against the things of God. This world is headed for judgment. This nation is headed for judgment. This city is headed for judgment. Everything around you is going to one day disappear. And the fact that it's all going to disappear doesn't mean, though, that you can't place your hand in the hand of Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. He places his hand in the hand of the blind man. There's few forms of communication that are more personal than that, is there? The touch of Jesus. Now, I want you to think about it, particularly when you're talking to your friend or your family about Jesus. And they go, I don't see Jesus. I don't get it. I don't understand. And and you might bring your family member to church. And your family member might be involved with drugs or alcohol. Your family member might be involved in in, in some sort of wicked lifestyle. Your, Your family member might be involved with homosexuality. Your family member might be involved in any kind of circumstance or in any kind of issue. And then all of a sudden, (laughs) Gino tells a joke. And they're offended. And they go, oh no, I hope he doesn't do that thing where he offends people. Can you imagine they take their friend to Jesus and they take him to the outskirts of town and then he spits in their eye. I mean, can you imagine you come to church and you go, okay, he's not going to spit in my mom's eye or my dad's eye. He's not going to spit in their eye. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. And then all of a sudden. And can you imagine what the friends are thinking at this point? Oh, Jesus, spit in the eye. I don't know if he's, I don't know how open he's going to be to this. When you spit in people's eye, it, it, it's disgusting and gross, and it makes me feel uncomfortable. If you thought taking him by the hand was a personal form of communication, how do you think saliva will work? I need you to understand something. In that culture, and I've already told you, in the ancient world, it was believed that saliva had medicinal properties. And it certainly makes sense. If you burn your finger or you cut your finger, where's the first place it goes? Don't shake this hand later, by the way. (laughs) To the blind man, this action of Jesus was meant to build his faith. Remember, Jesus isn't a magician. He's not a flim-flam man. He's not looking for a way to dazzle the crowd. 
Jesus cares about this man's vision, but he also cares about his soul. And he cares about his eternal destiny. Jesus wants to heal the man, but he's also making room for his soul, a cure for the spiritual blindness that affects our hearts. And the touch of Jesus will lead the blind man to a place where he can be helped. And I've got to, I need you to understand something. For many of you, you're thinking, well, look, Jesus, if you're going to heal the man, why don't you just sort of create the Mayo Clinic? Invent modern medicine. I mean, if he's got a detached retina, why don't make a doctor who can help him, who can heal him? You know, when I grew up, I lost my vision rather quickly. By the time I was in the fourth grade, I wore glasses. By the time I was in the seventh grade, I had the kind of glasses that you could burn ants with. It wasn't until later in life that I had LASIK surgery. And it's really interesting because when you have LASIK surgery, they put you on this gurney and, you know, they prep you and they do all kinds of stuff. And um, they put a laser over the top of your, of, of your eye. And I remember distinctly when the laser went on, I could smell my own flesh burning. But I felt nothing. I felt nothing. And we think that something as primitive and gross and disgusting as saliva, why in the world would Jesus use something like that to heal someone like him? But you've got to understand something. It is the words that proceed out of the mouth of Jesus that heal. Consider the source. Where is the saliva coming from? It's coming from the mouth of Jesus. And where does life come from? It comes from the mouth of Jesus. It comes from the words of Jesus. And people are under the impression that if Jesus says it, how can that be true? How can that transition you from darkness to light? How can that bring you from emptiness to fullness? How can that bring you from a place of condemnation to a place of acceptance? Because guess what? Jesus said, I come from the Father. Remember, the Bible says that his words are life. In those words, there's life. And that life is the light of men. The touch of Jesus will bring this person to a place where vision can take place. You know, this morning when I was preparing the message, I was thinking about my grandma. My grandma died in 1999. And I miss her every day. And I could almost hear her voice this morning speaking. I remember she said, every person has two ends. An end to think with and an end to sit with. And what he accomplished depends on the end he chooses. My granny would say, heads, you win. Tails, you lose. Which end are you going to think with? Jesus asks this man, do you see anything? I've been teaching the Bible for a very long time. And it's been my experience that when Jesus asks a question any time in the New Testament, do you suppose it's because he doesn't know the answer? Has that been your experience that when Jesus asks a question, can you imagine Jesus is going, I'm wondering if this spit in the eye thing is going to work. I don't think that that's what's happening. 
In verse 24, it says, and he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. The vision is partially restored. It can't mean that Jesus has botched the job. I also can't believe that it's some kind of limitation of faith on the part of the blind man or his friends. It isn't because all of a sudden he doesn't believe or his friends don't believe. What is happening here? Why is there only a partial healing? Maybe it has something to do with the context of the passage or this place and point of ministry. We've seen Jesus say and do things, but we also begin to understand something that Jesus has a message, but he cares about something. He cares about people. And I've told you this over and over again in our text, haven't I? Over and over again, we come back to the issue and you might be sick of me saying this, but Jesus cares about people. He cares about their life and he cares about their circumstances. He cares about their marriage. He cares about the emptiness and the loneliness and the darkness. He cares about the depression. He cares about the drinking and the drugs. He cares about the loneliness. He cares about the direction of your life. He cares about you. And it might be that Jesus is trying to say something to this man who sees men like trees. Without reading too much into the text, he may or may not be able to see people for who they really are and and what they need to be. We do need to see people as people. And clearly, if he sees men walking like trees, it's going to be very difficult for him to see a man on a tree. A different man and a different tree. Your vision may be blurred. Your vision may be incomplete. But I want you to see clearly. Jesus, when he says, tell me what you see. It's an interesting question. What is it that you see? Do you see the outline of the truth, but you don't see the details? Do tell me what you do see. Don't tell me what you don't see. Tell me what you do see. Do you see that there's a God? Do you see that the Bible is true? Do you see that you're a sinner in need of a savior? Do you see? Tell me what it is that you do see. You may not have all of the details, but tell me what it is that you see. And it could very well be that this man is saying, I don't see as much as I should. And maybe I need to hope that I can see more. Before Jesus came, life was very depersonalized. The blind man almost certainly would have been excluded because of his handicap. We're all sometimes blind, oblivious to the people around us. We are careful not to get too close, and we are careful not to care too much. And in the world in which Jesus is living, alienation and meaninglessness characterized both Jew and Gentile. There was rich and there was poor. There was Jew and there was Gentile. There was male and there was female. There was free and there was slave. There were national blinders and class blinders and gender blinders and standing blinders. And the list could go on and on and on and on. Spurgeon wrote, 
The miracle cannot be used as a picture of the restoration of a willful sinner from the error of his ways or the turning of the debauched and depraved from the filthiness of their lives. It is a picture of the darkened soul gradually illuminated by the Holy Spirit and brought by Jesus Christ into the light of his kingdom. And that's in part probably what is happening. There's an unfolding that's taking place. The Lord will remove the filth and the film from the man's eyes to let in some of the light. But the vision is indistinct and unclear. Are things unclear to you? Are you still asking questions? Are you still wondering whether or not the Bible is true and whether or not the gospel is true and whether or not you can trust Jesus to save you? Look at verse 25. Then he, that's Jesus, put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. Place yourself there. See the Savior. See the Savior putting his hands on. On the eyes of this man who has an incomplete vision. Have you ever played peekaboo with your children or grandchildren? You know, my my little baby granddaughter, she's going to be two in July. But when you put your hands over her eyes. And you quickly open them and go. She laughs and she giggles. You see, when you're a child, when it's dark, it makes sense that the whole world is dark. When you're a child and it's dark, when you can't see, it makes sense that no one else can see. And Jesus puts his hands on his eyes. And look what it says. And made him look up. I'm going to ask you a question. Ask the text a question. Ask the question, who is the first person that this man sees clearly? That's exactly right. Jesus has got his hands on his eyes and he removes his hands and he's looking into the face of Jesus. Fanny Crosby, who wrote many wonderful songs and hymns, she was blind early on because of a, of a mistake that a doctor had made and she was she lost her vision for the for the sum and the substance of her life but she was always comforted by the fact that the reality is that the very first face that she would see in eternity is the face of Jesus and you see the truth maybe not clearly you don't see the details Of the truth. But like the song, I would invite you to look closely into the eyes of Jesus, to stare full into his wonderful face, remembering that the things of this world will grow strangely dim. And look what it says in the text. And he was restored. Apo, kat, sat, pefe. According to Thayer, it means to restore to its former state. The implication is that through this miracle power of Jesus, the man is restored to see what he once saw. I'm going to suggest to you that there's the possibility that this man lost his sight. And then now Jesus gives him the ability to recover the sight. 
and he sees clearly. And by the way, the word clearly is a rare word in the New Testament. It means to see with distinction from a distance. We have an expression that we use in our culture and society. We say, I see things 20-20. You see it clearly. <laughs> Not only did the man see, but I'm going to suggest to you he understands something. Something that he didn't understand before. You know, the Bible teaches that spiritual things are impossible to understand unless they're understood spiritually. Is this some sort of elite double talk? No, no. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul writes, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. There is a visible world that you see and there is an invisible world that you don't see. But that doesn't make it not real. And that's the point. When did the gospel first become real to you? When did it make sense to you? At what point did you open up your Bible and you began reading your Bible and it began making sense to you? And you said, how come nobody told me this is in the Bible? And they said to you, how come you never looked? What is it that you didn't want to see? Remember, we learned earlier in Mark's gospel that the, that when you care about people, it becomes a mark of spiritual maturity, doesn't it? The way you care about people becomes a mark of spiritual maturity. And guess what? How you see people as people will also become a mark of spiritual maturity. Are you impaired? Tell me about your eyes. Tell me what you see. Tell me what you don't see. Are you growing into the measure of the stature of the fullness that's found in Jesus, like it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13? Are you content or complacent? Do you have passion and desire to grow and to learn and to mature? And do you carry that passion for a sense of understanding of the people who are all around you? Are you drinking deeply from the fountain of his grace? What is it that Jesus has given to you? Because I'm going to ask you another question. Did it ever occur to you that he wants to give you so much more? That he wants you to be able to see him clearly. I was reading this week about Dr. Albert Sloan. He was one of the leading eye doctors in the plant, on the planet Earth, he wrote, quote, The best thing for your eyes is to use them, not save them, according to Dr. Albert E. Sloan, eye surgeon at the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary in Boston. Dr. Sloan also said, Contrary to popular belief, reading in poor light does not harm the eyes. That type of use improves the ability of the eye. To use its potential to the fullest, unquote. See, mom, if you're getting this tape, my mom always told me, don't read in the dark. You're going to ruin your eyes. By the way, I did ruin my eyes, but I don't know that it was because it was reading in the dark. 
you see dimly, darkly, indistinctly? Are you using the light that you do have available to you? Are you trying to determine what it is that God wants you to see? And look what it says in verse 26. Then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. By the way, why does Jesus forbid or prohibit the man from going into the town or telling anyone in the town? Has Bethsaida already been lost? Has it lost its opportunity to find peace with God? That's the most shocking explanation. And sometimes I think about that with you. Have I told you something that you just simply won't hear? Am I saying things that make no sense? Am I speaking to people who, for whatever reason, their mind is dark and their heart is hard and they can't hear and they can't see? I don't know the answer, but I do know this. That I feel compelled to tell you over and over and over again. That there is a Savior and His name is Jesus and that He loves you and that He died for you and that He rose from the dead and He can save you. Was He to stay away because His presence might have brought resentment to the people who love darkness rather than light? You'll remember when Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, the religious leaders weren't interested in just simply killing Jesus, but now they were willing to kill Lazarus. In John 12, 10, it says, but the chief priest consulted that they might put Lazarus to death because that, that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Is it possible that Jesus told the man not to go back just simply for his own safety? Is it possible that he asked him not to go back because... In some way, by going back, he would draw undue attention to himself and it would somehow hinder the plan of God or the work of God. Whatever the reason is, when Jesus asks you to do something, even though you don't understand the reasoning behind it, it makes good sense for you to do it. We've asked a lot of questions of the text. Why did Jesus lead the man out of the town? Why didn't Jesus heal him on the spot? Why go through all the drama of spit and incremental healing? And I'm willing to concede that sometimes our questions and answers might seem inadequate or incomplete. But again, here's what we know. Is Jesus sovereign? Yes. Is Jesus Lord? Yes. Does Jesus know what he's doing? Yes. Does Jesus owe you an explanation? No. Is Jesus accountable to you? Or are you accountable to him? You know, I'm going to suggest something to you. I'm sure that there are valid reasons for everything that Jesus did. But I'm not always privy To those reasons. (laughs) There's a reason for everything that Jesus does. 
And it may shock you and it may annoy you. That Jesus heals on his terms. Jesus does what Jesus wants to do. And every healing may be different. And why is it that some people are born again and they have this exceptional spiritual insight? And why is it when other people are born again that they're seemingly clueless? Tell me what it is that you see. Tell me what it is that you understand. Jesus doesn't see people like trees. He sees people like people. And by the way, the man who says, I've seen it all. There's nothing left to see. That person's blind. Do you use people or serve people? Do you see them as providers like lumber for shelter or for shade? Do you see people like knotty pine or exotic lumber? How do you see them? Yes, Jesus touched a blind man and he saw people like trees. And Jesus knew that a limited vision, an unclear vision, an indistinct vision is not the way... To go through life. And so Jesus touched him again. You know what I've noticed about Jesus? He never leaves a task unfinished. He never leaves a job undone. You know he's talking about you, right? Jesus is in the process of working, working, working. Planning, planning, planning. Completing, completing, completing. You know, this week I came to grips with something. There seem to be cases that are too difficult for me. You'd be surprised what people come to me and they ask me to fix. Please fix my husband's drug addiction. Please fix my marriage. Please fix this. Please fix that. Please fix this. Please fix that. Make my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister. Can you say something to make them see? But Jesus. Jesus has the power. That's unlimited. There's nothing too difficult for Jesus. Jesus can do what I can't do. Moment by moment, Jesus imparts the fullness of his grace and his power and his mercy. And whatever else the ending verse says, remember, he doesn't send him back to the city, which is a place of judgment, but he sends him back home. Jesus will never make you go back to the place that is under sentence of judgment. He'll send you home where people love you. He'll send you home where you belong. He'll send you home to complete the work. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory 
and grace. Put the lens on so that you can see clearly. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your love. Lord, you're growing us up. Lord, we know that spiritual maturity involves care. And we know that spiritual maturity involves treating people like people. Lord, we know that each and every one of us, our vision is sometimes blurred. Lord, sometimes we see things in an incomplete fashion or an indistinct way. Lord, we pray that we would see more than just the outlines of truth, but that we would begin to see the fine features of truth, not just simply so that we could know more, but so that we could see more. And we could see the most important thing that needs to be seen. The full, the wonderful face of our Savior, Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.